Uh, today's passage, uh, Paul gives his testimony about how he became called into the ministry. Uh, and he basically says it was because of grace. And so today's topic, we're going to talk about grace. It's, I think it's always a temptation for us um, because we talk about grace so much and we use it so much. And when you're preparing sermons or when you're in ministry, you prepare about grace and you teach others about grace so much that sometimes I think we stop contemplating what grace actually is. We, we actually start to use it as just a word um, and we lose its, its impact or its meaning. It stops making uh, a difference functionally in our lives. Over there on uh, 50th and Baltimore, which is, I think, close by here. I don't know if any of you have ever passed by there. Yes. On the 50th, on the corner of 50th and Baltimore, there stands a, a, a great stone Gothic church that rises high above the, the, the other working class buildings of that neighborhood. Built in 1901 for the mainline St. Paul Presbyterian Church, that structure has several magnificent, large uh, stained glass windows adorning its walls. And for a long time, that church with its magnificent stained glass windows was the jewel of that working class neighborhood. Unfortunately, like the decline of that mainline Presbyterian denomination, that church over the years has also fell into disrepair. The building has fallen into disrepair. The ownership has changed several times. At one point, it became an African Methodist Episcopal church. If you think about that theologically, I don't know how that all, George, can you make sense of that? Methodist Episcopal church, but it became an AME church. And then most recently, it became a Pentecostal church. But the building uh, still was falling into disrepair. The walls began to crumble. I think if you drive by today, uh, you will see large steel girders holding up, you know, one side of the wall. The stained glass, the once magnificent stained glass became dull. And things once precious became mundane in that building, neglected, forgotten. Now, the pastor of that Pentecostal church who currently owns that building uh, recently, he began to want to renovate it. And so he hired a team to demolish everything inside the church. However, before he went ahead and demolished everything inside, he also hired an architectural salvager. I didn't know these people existed, but these are called architectural salvagers. They are people who go into these buildings before they're demolished to pick out anything they want. And then as the owner of the building, you, you actually earn a little money, you sell the stuff to them, and then they salvage whatever they want and they do whatever they want with it. And so this pastor sold the, uh, the stained glass windows to the architectural salvager for $6,000. Now the salvager took the windows home. He cleaned them. He washed them. He shined them. He got the doll off. And then he took it to an auctioneer to evaluate the price. Turns out that these stained glass windows were actually authentic, rare 
Tiffany stained glass windows designed by Lewis Comfort Tiffany himself in New York City in the early 1900s. Each piece, the auctioneer said, was worth $150,000 to $250,000. Now, the pastor who sold them for $6,000, he's now run out of money for the renovations of his church, and now he's crowdfunding for replacement stained glass windows. What a shame. Today we are going to talk about grace. It is a precious doctrine. Precious, just like those Tiffany stained glass windows. However, there is a temptation for us just like what that pastor did to those windows to make it mundane, to forget about how precious it is, maybe because we talk about it so often, maybe because we teach about it so often, maybe because we, we read about it and use it you know, and say it in our lives, you know, say, uh, you know, we say grace before dinner, yeah. right? Maybe, maybe it's become such a part of our lives that we stop contemplating it, the depth of it, the, the, the richness of it, and we lose sense of how precious it is, it, it is. We neglect it and we forget it. And so today, hopefully, what we'll do with this passage is we're going to look at grace. And we're going to try to look at it and see its beauty and see how exceedingly abundant it is in our life, just as Paul uh, used those terms in this passage. So we'll just talk about it in two points. When ta Paul talks about receiving grace, when did he receive it? When? When did he receive this grace? And then what did he receive? What was the grace that he received from God? So first, when did Paul receive grace? Remember in 1 Timothy, so far, Paul has charged his disciple Timothy. Timothy is going to take over the churches that Paul has planted. And Timothy is now going to be the evangelist that uh, goes throughout this region to, to help build up the churches and shepherd the churches after Paul is gone. And so remember, we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago. Paul's charge to Timothy was uh, two parts, right? Keep the faith, keep the doctrine pure, and then love. Because out of a pure doctrine and pure faith should come the fruit of love. And so Paul charges Timothy, but now Paul moves into the section where he basically tells Timothy, okay, this is why I'm charging you. This is where I got the charge from. It's because I was called into this ministry by God. But notice how Paul talks about this. All right, let's look at uh, 1 Timothy 1 verses 12 to 13, where Paul says, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. That word, to count, he counted me faithful. That word, to count, means to consider, to esteem, or to to regard someone as something, to think of someone as something. Uh, it's the same word that's used in Philippians 3.8, where, 
when Paul says, yet indeed I also count all things lost, all things about himself. Remember Philippians 3, the beginning of that is where he says, if anyone has uh, a reason to boast in the flesh, I have more. But then he ends it in 3.8 saying, yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the same word. I consider all things lost. I esteem, I regard all things about my past loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's also the same sense that Paul uses later on in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, where he commands bondservants of, on how they ought to treat their masters. And Paul says, let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor. So that word count means to regard, to esteem, to think of someone in, in some way. Here, Paul is basically saying, Christ was the one who gave me grace and enabled me to be an apostle because he counted me faithful or he thought of me or he esteemed me as someone who was going to be faithful to the gospel ministry. That makes a lot of sense, right? We'd figure Jesus Christ knows what he's doing. And so he would only appoint people who are going to be faithful, not scoundrels, not carpetbaggers, not fakes, right? But he would only appoint people who are faithful to be his apostles. Certainly, coming from the one who was ultimately faithful to the one who sent him, right? Jesus was perfectly faithful to his father. Coming from that one, this is high praise. This is high esteem. Now, here's the most important question for us to consider. When? When did Christ count Paul faithful? When did Christ count Paul faithful? Was it before his conversion? At his conversion? Or after sometime after his conversion. Before we give a quick answer, I want us to think about this through human terms. Uh, this coming week, so my, I, I work for the Public Defender's Office in Montgomery County. I've shared that before. Uh, we Actually, right now, we don't have a chief public defender. We don't have like a boss boss. We've had interim people sort of filling in that role. But the county, there's a board set up to, to, to hire a a chief public defender for us. And actually this coming week, everyone in the office, we get to join a, a Zoom call with three applicants, three people who are trying to become the chief public defender. And so we'll be trying to figure out, should we count or should we esteem this person qualified to be a chief public defender? Now, what do you think are some of the things that we'll be looking for? Experience, right? Honor, right? your temperament, your character, uh, how long you've, uh, maybe just ex uh, uh, practice experience, right? How long you've been a trial lawyer. We don't certainly want somebody who uh, just graduated out of law school, right? Maybe uh, how, how well you are at managing, managing people, right? Because you're not just a lawyer, you're, you're, now, a, you're, you're now management, right? How, how good you are at human resources or human relations. In other words, we're going to be looking at all this person's work. 
all of this person's work to determine whether he should be counted worthy to be a chief public defender. Now, I suppose all of us, if we were somehow, you know, the Jerusalem council, right back in Paul's time, and this young person named Saul came before us and wanted to be an apostle, what would be our criteria to count him faithful as an evangelist, as an apostle of Jesus Christ? I think we would look at his work. You know, what have you done? What's your temperament? You know, what, what, what have you been doing in the, the last two weeks out in Damascus? Why were you going there in the first place? Right? I mean, we would look at his work. We would base our counting him faithful on his work. But why did Christ, or when did Christ count Paul faithful? Look at the second half of verse 12 to 13, which we just read. Where the Bible says, Because Christ counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. You see, friends, here the Bible is very clear. Christ counted Paul faithful even when his entire body of work was he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor and he was an insolent man. That word insolent means violent. Yes, this was a violent man. I mean, I think when we say a church elder, we sometimes have this picture of a of a of a man, right? Different kinds of personalities, but definitely not violent and insolent, not a murderer. But here Paul was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and on top of that, an insolent man. And it's in that condition when Christ counts Paul faithful, faithful to be a minister of the gospel. Paul definitely didn't work for it. He definitely didn't even show any potential or aptitude for it. Um, during the Reformation, there was, a, uh, there was a heresy called middle knowledge where you know, it was an attempt to, 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 to come to a safe middle ground between those who said, well, grace is you know, uh, without works and those who said, well, you kind of earn your grace. And, 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 and people said, well, maybe there's a happy middle ground where it's not based on works, but God sees your potential for good works. God sees your aptitude. God sees your future. And he sees that in your future, you're going to be a good person. So based on that, he gives you grace. It's called middle knowledge. It's a heresy. Up to that point, had Paul displayed any potential? to be a minister? Had he displayed any aptitude to be a faithful servant of Christ? See, friends, it was by grace alone, right? He even says, but I attained mercy. I obtained mercy because I did all of that ignorantly in unbelief. Now, of course, your question is, well, what if Paul 
hadn't done those things in unbelief. Right? What if he's like us? Right? Paul wasn't a believer, and he did all those things, and he was a sinner. We admit that, and God calls him by grace alone to be a minister. Okay, we can kind of make sense of that. But what about us who who believe and we sin and you know we sin as believers? Will God still give us grace? Well, um, I think one way to think of it is I, I think it's interesting. You read Psalm fifty-one. David was a believer when. He sinned with Bathsheba, and then he wrote Psalm 51. And did God give him grace? Yes. I think we can think about it in this other way. I think all of us in our imperfection and sin are in some state of ignorance, like Paul. Right? We haven't attained to full maturity. We haven't attained to full glory. And all of us in our sin, right? You talked about Mark. You talked about sins of omission. Well, sins of omission are, by definition, sins of ignorance, because we haven't done what we're supposed to do. And so, I think all of us are in the same boat. Think about yourselves. You know, um, you know, I'm, I stand in this room, and uh, I think I'm the least experienced <laughs> of all the all the folks here who who are who who've been serving the Lord. Right? When did God give you the call? Well, based on what did he give you the call to be his servant? Was it based on your works or is it based on grace alone? The fact that God would view us through the lens of his mercy and grace and not through what we've done before in order to call us, that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, we read all over scripture today, Hosea chapter six, verse six. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The interesting part about Hosea 6 is, I don't know if you noticed it, but it begins with this, it seems like this prayer to to come back to the Lord because his mercies will return like the rains. And maybe two days he'll ignore us, but the third day he'll, he'll raise us up again. But then the Lord seems to rebuke that desire to come back to him. And he says, oh, Ephraim, your faithfulness is like the morning dew. It's here and then it's gone again. Right? God knows that his people won't be faithful to that. Those first few verses where they're saying, let's return to the Lord because he's going to return back to us. And God says, nope, you've done that before and I know you won't. And so what does he say? Therefore, I've sent my prophets and I've sent my word to, 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 to slay you. Right? To judge you. But then he says, wonderfully in Hosea 6, for I desire mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Because basically your sacrifices like raggedy rags. I mean, think about the whole book of Hosea. What's going on in the whole book of Hosea? God's using, telling Hosea to, 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 to make a metaphor of his relationship with Israel, right? Go marry a prostitute. And when she runs away, what does God tell Hosea to do? You go pursue her. You give her grace. You go after her. Right? Not because she's shown any inclination to come back to you. No. Not because she has any works or any potential or any aptitude. Right? That was the point of marrying a prostitute. And then God says, you, Hosea, go pursue after her because that's how I'm going to show grace to Israel. That's grace. 
That's how God gives each of us grace. Matthew 9, verse 13, where Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Notice where Jesus was when he says this. He's in a room full of tax collectors and sinners. Imagine if all of a sudden today in our little room, we invited a whole bunch of tax collectors and sinners. Now, it's interesting in that part, Jesus, the Bible does not say, well, these were tax collectors and sinners, but they were really repentant. You know, they, they, they were really, uh, you know, on the right path. They were seekers and they were really interested in the gospel. And so they showed some kind of aptitude or, or, or potential for, for good works. And so that was why Jesus died with them. No, it just says flat out they were tax collect, tax collectors and sinners. And yes, of course, I think we would agree with the Pharisees who had a problem. Why are you dining with those sinners? And then this is when Jesus says, well, I desire mercy. I desire mercy. Psalm 86, which, which we'll read uh, at the end of our service, uh, is, a, is a psalm pleading for God to, to help the psalmist who is David. Please come to my help. We don't know what type of uh, uh, predicament he was in. It sounds like his life is in danger. Okay, but he doesn't state that. Uh, uh, I don't know that he states that directly. Sounds like his life is in danger. He, he's pleading with God to come help me. It's interesting. What does David base his plea on? He doesn't say, well, God, because I've done all these sacrifices for you. He doesn't say, because God, I've been very faithful to you. He says, because of your mercy, because of your mercy. He actually re repeats that several times in Psalm 86. When were you called to serve Christ? You know, you've all been in ministry for, you know, in some way or another for a while. When do you think Christ called you to be his servant? Before your conversion, at your conversion, or sometime after your conversion, right? It was before, before you had displayed any potential or aptitude or work to be a faithful servant. Now, what grace? That was when Paul received grace. What grace? What did Paul receive? Look at verse 14, where Paul says, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. The key word here is that word with. What does that word with mean? Right? When he says, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Does that word with, does it mean obtained with? Meaning, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant, which I obtained with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Well, it doesn't quite sound right. right? Sounds wrong. Doesn't fit the context. Um, does it mean, uh, and the grace of our, does it mean increased with, right? The grace of our Lord was already exceedingly abundant and it only increased with my faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. And that doesn't, doesn't sound right either against the context. 
the best option for that word with is along with. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant along with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Meaning, God gave Paul grace. And not only that, he gave him much faith and much love. All of that was grace. All of that was poured out into Paul's life. All of that was given to Paul exceedingly, abundantly, and before he had displayed any sign of turning to God. Don't usually recommend these versions, but I feel like these versions for this verse give a pretty good translation. Okay, The New International Version says, The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I think that captures it well. The Good News Bible. I don't use that now anymore, but when I was growing up in elementary school, my Bible was a Good News Bible, and I came to know God through the Good News Bible. This is what the Good News Bible says. And our Lord poured out his abundant grace on me and gave me the faith and love which are ours in union with Christ Jesus. I think that captures the meaning pretty well. Now, of course, the grace of God can mean many things, right? Can include in many things. We, of course, remember what Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verse 3 and following, right? Everything is by grace, right? Our election is by grace. Our adoption is by grace. Our calling, our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, the, the revealing of the mysteries that were uh, hidden for long ages, but now have been revealed to us. That's by grace. The sealing of the Holy Spirit and the guarantee of our salvation. That's by grace. So if grace refers to all these things, and it does, why does Paul here focus on just two, faith and love? What's so significant about faith and love? Well, one, faith and love are the charges that Paul's giving to Timothy. Remember, this charge, Timothy, uh, contains two parts. Keep the faith. Keep the doctrine. Keep it pure. And then love. Grow in love because the love is the true fruit of pure doctrine. Well, Paul here is basically saying to Timothy, I'm charging you to keep these two things, faith and love, because I received these two things from God by grace. I didn't work for them. I didn't learn them. I didn't obtain how to do them by myself as a sensei does in, you know, in other cultures and religions. But God poured these two things. He gave me abundant faith. He gave me abundant love. Think about this. Paul goes from an insolent man to a loving man. Now, that doesn't happen. You, you know this, right? Being around people on 69th Street, people that you've evangelized to, a violent person doesn't all of a sudden just turn into a loving person unless God pours something into his life and gives him a new life. That's what's happened to Paul. And Paul's saying to Timothy, I've received these things abundantly. Now I'm charging you to do the same. The second reason that this is emphasized is because faith and love are so important for your work of evangelism. This is a book from evangelist to an evangelist, right? From Paul to Timothy. 
about evangelism. And what two other things are more important than faith and love? Evangelism. You need faith. You need good doctrine. You need good preaching. You can't be an evangelist if you're spouting off wrong biblical ideas. You need sound biblical teaching. You also need faith in this way. You need trust. You need reliance on God, the Holy Spirit. Right? Especially when you feel afraid. Especially when you have nothing to say. Yeah. You don't know how to answer questions. You need faith to come back the next day. You need faith to open your mouth. Every time you open your mouth or every time you go up to somebody and hand them a tract, that's faith. You need faith. And you definitely need love. Yeah. Right? You definitely need love. We won't need to go into much detail about that one. How often do you run low on faith and love and you wish you had more? Think about Paul. Think about how many times Paul must have run low on faith and love. Think about those times that he got run out of, the, run out of those cities because they rioted and they wanted to kill him. You think those were times when Paul ran low on faith? Think about when Paul was imprisoned. Think about when he was shipwrecked. You think he ran low on faith? How about love? Did Paul ever run low on love? Well, just read the letter to the Galatians. Why would he admonish them that way? You foolish Galatians. He's running low. He's running low on patience and love. Think about the Corinthians. Right, Paul, certainly you felt him get aggravated to the point of losing his patience, losing his love for the Corinthians. But even though Paul ran low, he never ran out. He ran low, but never ran out. Why? Why? Because it's grace. God's giving it to him. He's not working for it. If this was something he worked for, Yes, you would run low and then you would run out because we are limited. Yes, because this is coming from an eternal, everlasting source that's pouring out grace and more grace and more faith and more faith and more love and more love into his life. But then you say, well, that's Paul. That's not us. Right? That's Paul. How do we know God's going to do the same thing for us? Well, let's look at the last couple of verses, verses 15 to 16. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first Christ Jesus might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Here, Paul, through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, says, God saved me this way, and I'm not unique. This is a pattern. Pattern for the rest of us. This is how God saves all of us. Right? I mean, we really do believe the words of Ephesians 1, 3. Don't we, when the Holy Spirit says, we are blessed because we've been blessed with all the heavenly, 
with all the spiritual blessings of the heavenly, of the heavenly places in Christ. Right? We believe that, don't we? If that's the case, will that ever run out? Will that ever run out? When we run low, what do we do? We ask. We ask for more. Right? If things are by grace, if things are by grace, then the only application for us is we must pray. Right? Because if things come from God, then the only application for us is when we run low is we ask for more. When we need more, we ask for more. We need to pray. So friends, I hope we've gotten a a deeper appreciation of grace through today's word. But I also don't want us to leave with just some theological or theoretical knowledge, right? If this is true, if everything Paul needed for his ministry was by grace, his calling, his faith, his love, his ability to never run out, even though he ran low. If all that is true, and if what the Bible says about this is a pattern for all of us, if all that is true, then there's one application which is we must pray. We must pray for more faith and more love when we do our street evangelism, when we do our ministry. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for these uh, words of Paul. We thank you for this testimony. We thank you for saving his life and giving him such exceedingly abundant grace that you would turn a a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man into a man of faith, a man who had great faith, a man who is our example of faith in many respects, and a man of great love. Lord, we indeed look up to Paul because he does set for us such a great example. But Lord, we we learn today that all of this was grace. None of this was his work. So, Father, we pray that you would be true to your promise that this was also a pattern for us. This is a pattern for us. Give us more faith. Give us more love. Give us more grace. As we do our work in 69th Street, as we do uh, share the gospel within our families, as we live each day to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.